And I appreciate very much the invitation to share this weekend together. Some of you are, are new people to me, and I'm, I'm working on learning as many as I can. I, I want to learn more of you so there'll be that much more humiliation when I forget so many names next week. I'm not going to lie to you. That's a challenge for me, but I've really enjoyed the time to connect. And for some of us, there's a reconnect. I was, you know, you get nostalgic sometimes, and Jason and I were talking about his time in our home a week ago last Thursday when I was about 25 and he was a teenager and, and uh, the good times we had and the fights we had and the volleyball rules we learned. <laughs> and, you know, I was remembering with Cheryl, we, we played football together on one of the big fields there in Lubbock and we actually ran, like I literally ran around. That's how long ago that was. And I know that may sound unbelievable. We used to do stuff like that. And so there's a long history there. And I'm thinking back to that and what all has blossomed and grown. And I want to tell you something. I hope you'll take this with you. Don't you dare underestimate the power of the small things you can do. Because I've watched small things blossom in a lot of these lives that are sitting here in front of me now. And this, it's this sweet little old widow lady here and this humble young Christian there and just a person here and a person there. And yeah, there were some big deeds and some big people and big things, but there were a lot of little things that kept the momentum going. Don't underestimate the opportunities that God has put before you. Be willing to just, just be at least that small impact on someone's life. Because it can produce fruit that I've enjoyed being a part of this weekend, okay? I want you to take that seriously. And I want you to take that home, okay? Do something with that. So I really enjoyed our time. I hope that explanation makes that pretty evident to you. And I, You know, we didn't know a lot about horses, but my brother and I, we had horses at one point when we were little. And I think a few of you probably know a good bit more about horses than I do. One thing we learned early about horses, you get very far from the place they get barn fever, <laughs> and they get to wanting to go back home, and I'm sort of feeling like one of those horses now. I'm about ready to see the wife, but that doesn't diminish my enjoyment of this last moment together with you one bit. So I'm going to bite down on the bridle and stay with it just for one more sermon, all right? And I want to leave a word of encouragement with you about a beloved character we read about in the New Testament, a man named Barnabas. He is, according to translation, the son of of consolation. We read about him in Acts 4 and 36, where it says, Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, Barnabas. Now, when you see a, a male name in the New Testament that starts out with Bar, that means son of. It's kind of like in I think it's in Scotland, the Mac prefix, you know, that means son of, okay? In Irish, O'Malley, that's son of, of Mally. You know, we, a lot of different languages have that. My name, men's son, that's son of, okay? Well, in, in the Hebrew and the Aramaic, bar meant son of, bar nabus, son of nabus. And that combination meant son of consolation. And that apparently wasn't his birth surname. That was a name the apostles gave him befitting his personality. 
And that's the aspect of his personality I want to talk with you about this afternoon. To have a feel for that word, Nabus, that's the, the kind of part of Barnabas's name, that if I could say it crudely, the Nabus part of his name is 1 Corinthians 14 and 3, where he talks about ed, exhortation in the assembly. So think of the idea of exhorting and encouraging someone to try to bring the best out of them. Think of the exhortation you get from the songs you sing, the prayers that you pray, the teaching that you receive here on a regular basis. And that's the kind of thing the apostles were thinking about when they looked at that guy and said, that's who that is. You've got a similar term in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 4, praying us with much entreaty that we should receive the gift, etc. Talking about them taking a financial gift and sharing it with those that were in need. And that word entreaty, same word. There's an idea of pleading, maybe not quite begging, but sort of an earnest, you know, look, please take this gift, okay? That appeal to hear, please take this, that's part of Barnabas's name. So I'm sharing those verses with you to help you have this feel of who this guy was. And our word of encouragement with you this, this afternoon to bring our study to a close is to help us all cultivate our inner Barnabas, <laughs> to bring out that part. And maybe some are more gifted at being that encourager than others. Apparently Barnabas was because the apostles named him that for that reason. We can all do a, a little bit of that sort of thing. An encouragement from a Barnabas might look and feel a little different than an encouragement from some other <clears throat> maybe more aggressive personalities that we'll encounter in our study this afternoon. But encouragement is encouragement. And what speaks to one heart may not speak to the other heart, but bring in that other kind of encourager to that other heart, and that'll speak to them. And so let's all be something for somebody. And if what I'm trying to be isn't exactly what that person will hear and respond to, then maybe I can trust that one of my brothers or sisters is going to reach them in a way that I can't, and I'm just going to be the best kind of Barnabas that fits who I am to be that encourager for someone else. So let's think about those things together. Let's look at Barnabas's initial work here with Paul. If you're familiar with the story of the Apostle Paul, you know he was earlier known as Saul. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was a very um, devout and enthusiastic and zealous Pharisee, and he despised Christianity bitterly, and he persecuted the church accordingly. And we read about his encounter with the, the church at Jerusalem shortly after his conversion. He encountered a, a very difficult thing here when he said in Acts 9, 26 and 27, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And believed not that he was a disciple. And Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And here you've got a situation where Saul of Tarsus becomes a Christian. The same Saul that had been going around with authority from the the, the, uh, the temple officials and Jewish polity, he had authority to arrest people and drag them off to jail. He had hand in seeing people put to death, including the much beloved Stephen, early disciple uh, there at Jerusalem. And you can read about his last great sermon in Acts chapter 7 and his subsequent death. And you go into chapter 8 and you read uh, about Saul's hand in that matter. This was a guy that had helped thrown people's mama in jail, okay? 
And he sees Jesus on the road to Damascus. And later, Ananias, the gospel preacher, tells him what he needs to do to be saved. And he does that. And he becomes a Christian. And he's very devout in that. As devout as he was at one time against Christianity, he's that devout now in favor of Christianity. And after a little while of that, he comes back to Jerusalem and says, Ta-da, here I am. I'm your brother in the Lord. Know me, love me, trust me. Not so fast. Look, it would be easy to say they were wrong. They should have trusted Paul. It would easy, it'd be easy to play the forgiveness card and say they should have forgiven him. But think about this. Galatians 1.13, you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. He uses very strong language here to describe his past life in his zealous form of Judaism that he followed. Beyond measure, he persecuted the church and wasted it. Now, I understand the idea of forgiveness in Christ and love and trust, and I'm pretty sure the people at Jerusalem understood that too. But this is a tall order for this guy that imprisoned everybody's kin folks and loved ones to show up and say, hey, I'm one of you now. I mean, that's tough. In Acts chapter 8, the first three verses, it says of this same man, Saul, that he was consenting unto his death, talking about Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, entering into every house, and hailing men and women committed them to prison. Kick the door open and dragged your mom and dad off to jail because they believed in Jesus. He thought he was doing God a favor. And this guy shows up and says, trust me, I'm one of you now. Hey, that, that's hard to do. Now, before we get too mad at the saints at Jerusalem, I want to ask you to notice, Jesus had warned his disciples that this trust issue was an understandable thing. In Matthew 24 and verse 10, talking to his disciples about how the circumstances at Jerusalem would deteriorate, he said, and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Citizens of Jerusalem are going to turn against each other. So they heard this teaching from the Lord, and they talked about that stuff, and they had in their mind people turning on us, our own people turning on us and betraying us. And so you can see why they would be afraid that Saul would do that. When you think about Galatians 2 and 4, Paul himself later wrote a warning about this kind of thing in Galatians 2 and 4, that because of false brethren, unawares, brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Paul admitted <coughs> later on as a devout Christian that there are some people that pretend to be Christians that really aren't, and they're just trying to work against the church. So if Paul's going to admit that later on, then you know that was a thing. And so we can back up in time from Paul's admission and we can think about Jerusalem against the backdrop of Christ's warning. And maybe it's understandable that they didn't trust him. 
I mean, we could sit and go back and forth with lots of verses and wrestle with that problem, but we understand it was difficult for them to be in their position. And it was a real risk that somebody could pretend to be authentic but be fraudulent and have hurting the church as their motive. And it's very understandable, but people would think that Paul was one of those guys. But Barnabas took a risk. Barnabas took a risk. And Barnabas took him and said, come on, I'll go and I'll vouch for you. I'm going to tell you something. The Bible says confidence in an unfaithful man is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. You put your name behind the wrong guy, and it's hard to get past that. There have been times I made the decision to trust somebody and put confidence in them and help them be in a position of higher responsibility and entrust things into their hands and have that trust betrayed. And then you've got brethren looking at you saying, I thought you said, that's not easy. That'll make you gun shy. You know the old saying, once bitten, twice shy? (laughs) That's hard to go back and trust the next person. It's hard not to think that the other guy's going to turn coat on you too, and maybe I shouldn't trust anybody, and I'll be, I'm never going to put my name behind anybody's recommendation. It's easy to get those kind of feelings. may not be right, but it's kind of like those folks at Jerusalem. You can sort of see why they felt the way they felt. Barnabas took the risk. It could have turned on him as far as what it looked like from the outside. Barnabas could have been Paul's first victim. But it turned out his trust was not misplaced. And I'll tell you something. I, I can look at, back across the last several years and I can think about times that my trust was misplaced and how terribly that hurt. And I can mope about that and carry on about that, but I'll tell you what's good medicine. is to stop and think about the times that it worked and the times that it was the difference maker. And the times that I trusted somebody when I was afraid to trust them, but I went ahead and just tried to move forward cautiously, and it paid unbelievable dividends. There's a reason they call these things risks. Sometimes it jumps up and bites you. But in the end, the reward is worth it. That's the approach that Barnabas took with Saul. In Acts 11, 25 and 26, after you know, Paul had left Jerusalem and went about his business. Barnabas went out to hunt for him. It says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So he didn't just stop at Jerusalem vouching for Paul. You know, Paul labored with them and won their confidence, so things are getting better. But Paul moves, you know, back to his old home area, and Barnabas is ready to leave Jerusalem and go do some work. And he says, I'm going to go hunt Paul, and I'm going to find Paul, and I'm going to get him involved. We've got enough already in his story where we can see why they called him the son of consolation, because he's ever the encourager. Against all odds, when the risk seemed massive. He's the guy that steps in and takes the risk and says, I'm going to give trust a try, and I'm going to stick my neck out, 
and I want to see if I can bring out something in this guy. And that's what he did with Saul of Tarsus. Now, how many people did Barnabas impact through his taking that risk and working with Paul? What kind of doors did that open for Paul eventually to go on about a work that eventually brought him separate from Barnabas? And Paul went on preaching the gospel in multiple locations while Barnabas went his way and did his things. And things that Barnabas did in Acts 9 and in Acts 11 continued to bear fruit with Paul, through Paul, all the way up through Acts 28 and beyond. How could you measure that? All because a guy took a chance and said, I'm going to be an encourager. I'm going to take a risk. And I'm going to trust when others are afraid to. Barnabas had the same kind of relationship with other Christians. Look at his work prior to that moment there where he's hunting for Paul. In Acts 11, 22 through 24, the tidings of these things came to the ears of the church, which is at Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go forth as far as Antioch. And when he came, he had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added to the Lord. The guys at Jerusalem got word that the gospel was spreading in other places, and they're sitting here, you can imagine, in the planning room, you know. We, we need to send somebody up there to encourage these people. We need, we need to send somebody up there to take these new disciples by the hand and give them strength and give them courage and bring the best out in them. Who do we have? It's a no-brainer. Let's send Barnabas. He's good at this stuff. And so they sent him. And he did what his name said. He exhorted them all. He was son of consolation, son of exhortation. He went up there and went all nabus on them. Can I say it that way? And you know what happened? The church grew. It wasn't just because Barnabas was baptizing people. It's because he was taking other new Christians by the hand and teaching them to be that kind of disciple. And the gospel spread. And lives were touched because Barnabas thought, hey, wait, I can do a little something here. Now, when you measure the sum total of this one trip that Barnabas took in terms of just that one trip and that one season of effort there in Antioch against the grand scope of all the gospel ministry we read about in the New Testament, that's really not that huge. But it became huge because it multiplies by nature. It's seeds blowing in the wind. And what he did touched others to become a person that touches others, you see. And he spread that. He spread that idea of being an exhorter or an encourager. So much so, we understand today, that's what the church is supposed to be. That's what our assemblies are supposed to do. That's who we're supposed to be. And then there's the controversy with John Mark. This is where Barnabas comes under scrutiny. And frankly, Barnabas shines. In Acts 15, verse 36 through 39, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit our brethren in every city 
where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. That's right down Barnabas' alley. Let's go encourage people. All right, verse 37. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Now let's back up and see what happened here. Barnabas and Paul, close friends, close workers. Hey, let's go back out and encourage people. Barnabas is like, yeah, I'm all about that. So we're going to take my kinsman, right, John Mark. I mean, we're taking him, right? And Paul's like, you know, he's the last guy we're going to take, right? I mean, you understand that, right? And two immovable objects meet. What had John Mark done? Well, in Acts 13 and 13, when Paul and his com company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. What John Mark had done was he quit in the middle of the job. You go back to Acts 13 and verse 5, and you look at Paul's stance. It says, when they had arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their assistant. John was there to assist Paul and Barnabas and the work they were doing together. And in a mission trip where you're focused on mission work, you need help. There's a lot of stuff that's got to get done that has to do with daily life and daily functions that if you stop and do all that stuff, then you're neglecting other work that you're there, to, you're supposed to be doing. And so you find often these guys travel with assistants that worked with them. And that was John Mark's job. And John Mark started out but as the travel got tough, he quit on them. You remember what the proverb says? If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Look, I get it. Paul's being hard-nosed here when he says, we're not taking that guy, but let's go back to the trust issue for a minute. You put your trust in somebody, you put your name on the line for somebody, and you say, they'll do the job. And then that guy betrays you, and he doesn't do the job, and he quits right when things are getting difficult. And guess what happened right after John Mark left their company? Paul and Barnabas go on to Lystra. They wind up in Lystra, where Paul gets stoned nearly to death and left for dead. The opposition really ramped up. When a guy quits you right when things are getting hard and they just keep getting harder and you look around and the guy you counted on to be there for you and help you and be a part of your team and be a team player and not run home to mama and be a quitter and that guy's not there, it's easy to see why Paul said, look, I don't want to trust this guy. Now, you could make a case that Barnabas was playing favorites because John Mark was apparently his nephew. Oh, well, let's give him another chance, you know. And You know, you talk to some guys about this, they'll tell you Barnabas was wrong, he was playing favorites, he, should, he wasn't seeing it clearly, and I mean, you can make that case. And you talk to some guys, you can say, Paul was being too harsh, he should have given him a second chance, we serve a God a second chance. You know, you can make either case really, really well. And try to imagine the argument between Paul and Barnabas. 
You wonder what card Barnabas played? Here's what I think he played. Oh, you don't trust him. You mean like nobody trusted you at Jerusalem and I put my neck on the line to vouch for you? You mean that kind of not trust? Well, I bet that was a cool fight. <laughs> I wonder if Paul went to, oh, yeah, well, Proverbs 24 and 10, he quit on the hard day, and, I, you know, we got stoned at Lystra, and those people, and if the, the job got hard, and I don't want a mama's boy on our team. I mean, who knows how it went, but it had to be really something. You know, whoever was right and whoever was wrong, Barnabas put his hand on a boy's shoulder that was a quitter and said, come on, I'll take you. I, I would pay good money to know what that lecture was like that Barnabas gave John Mark as they went down the road in their own direction. I put a friendship on the line for you. I stuck my neck out for you. I've got a good friend that we've been through thick and thin together. We've nearly died together, and I walked away from that for you. You better not mess this up this time. I don't know if that's what he told him or not. That's just what I imagine. Whatever he did, whatever he said, it worked. John Mark went from being a quitter, I run home to mama, you can't count on him kind of a guy. He went home, and then later he became this. Colossians 4 and 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Some say cousin, some say nephew. He's a kinsman, okay? This is Paul. This is a good while after Acts 15. John went from not worth knocking in the head and I ain't going to have him with me on my trip to y'all welcome him. Hey, it got better than that. When Paul was drawing near to his death, he lamented in 2 Timothy 4 and 11, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Paul had to have sobbed over those words and remembered a bitter day when he quarreled with his good friend who was at one time his encourager. He had to have wept over those words as he saw the difference between John when he said, I ain't having that boy with us, and saying, bring him. He's useful. And what stands between useless and useful but the son of consolation, a guy that's willing to take a chance on somebody even when he's already got egg all over his face. He's willing to say, let's give him another chance. And he's willing to risk a friendship to give him that other chance. I'm not smart enough to figure out who all was right and wrong and all those nuances. In talking about this, I've heard a lot of fascinating ideas from some really smart fellow Christians and their insights into this story. 
And between when you part all that interesting discussion, I find a guy that just tried to encourage somebody, and when he did, it finally paid off. And good workers like John Mark are not an accident. That does not happen accidentally. Somewhere along the way, somebody in their life has put a firm hand on their shoulder and said, listen here now, you're capable of better. And let me show you how you can do it. I've had a few of those people in my life. Sometimes the thing they said felt pretty good. And sometimes the things they said hurt like thunder and was the last thing I wanted to hear. And I bet a lot of you can relate to those feelings. Don't undervalue the Barnabas in all of our lives, whoever they may be, male or female. Don't undervalue them and don't undervalue the power you hold in your hand to be that kind of encourager for others. Because that's what the Lord wants of all of us. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 11 says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you also do. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, every one of you be a Barnabas for each other. Well, I'm not good at that kind of... That's, you know what? Barnabas was good at it. It looks to me like Paul was a little rough around the edges at that part of it. I don't, that's what I get out of Acts 15. You don't have to be as good at it as Barnabas. Just do what you can do. You see that brother or that sister... Pat them on the back. Thank them. Just take time to say thank you for who they are, for what they do, for the smallest deed. Well, but they're stronger than I. They're better than I. They're, they're, they're my Barnabas. That's all right. They need Barnabases too. So be that for them. Let's learn from Barnabas. Take opportunity to encourage one another. Help others when they are down. Seek opportunities to elevate others toward their potential. You will not be the only voice trying to reach them. And at the end of the day, we're all just trying to channel the voice of God into one another's hearts to let us hear what the testimony of His Word says. We we may not be that much, but He's put powerful tools in our hands. The Word of God and Christian love. And those things can turn the world upside down if we'll just embrace who the Lord has called us to be. So go be that encourager. And I want to take this one last opportunity in the course of this meeting to be an encourager for you, to obey the gospel if that is your need this afternoon, or to offer you the prayers of the church. If we can help you in either way, please come while we stand and sing.